and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome those who are joining us online and uh, a Merry Christmas to everyone. Um, you know, Christmas is the time that we, we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and understandably, normally, we, we often look at the story from Mary's perspective, uh, you know, with all that she went through and everything. And, you know, even after all these years, theologians are still trying to figure out if she knew. And, um, oh boy, it's a bad start. That's not a good joke. It's all downhill. Like that was, that was my best part. And um, so I'm going to pray for you guys because I'm not changing the jokes. So, um, but I, I thought I'd start this morning though, by sharing um, the, the promise of Jesus' birth, but from Joseph's perspective. So you don't have to turn to it in your Bibles because um, I want to cover a lot of ground this morning, but I want to read to you from Matthew chapter one, uh, beginning of verse 18. Now the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ has been, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you should call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall be called and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translate means God with us. It's that promise of in Isaiah 7, 14 of, of Emmanuel, God with us. That is what is so special about Jesus' birth, that, that what's happened here is that God himself has, has entered into the fray, that God has joined our, our plight in this miserable, sin-cursed world as one of us. And he was born as this little, little child, this little baby, thereby fulfilling a prophecy that is thousands of years in the making. Many prophecies, in fact that this promised child would come and be the savior. What's, what's interesting, I think, is the very first time that a promise of a child is made is actually in the passage that we're studying in Genesis chapter 15. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a little bit of a different Christmas message in that we're gonna continue on in our study of Abram, but I want you to see that there's the connection there, that everything was leading towards uh, Bethlehem, which ultimately then leads towards Calvary. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we are calling upon your name this morning. We are very much aware of how desperate we are for you, how much we need your grace. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. And we have it because we have you, Lord Jesus. And so I am asking you, Lord, to be the teacher, to be the one who speaks through me and conveys incredible truths. Lord, you've you blessed me this week as I've been preparing and studying. And I pray Lord now that every one of us would have a, a fresh awakening of things we've already heard before in part, but Lord, may your life just knock us over. May we be in awe of who you are and what you've done for us and what you've given to us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's read verse one in Genesis chapter 15. Says after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. All right. After these things, what were the things that were happening right before? Anyone remember in chapter 14, what, what, we, what we studied there? You didn't know there'd be a test this morning. I know, I'm sorry. But 
But that was the story where Abram and his 318 trained men went to war and defeated those four kings that had kidnapped Lot and many of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so after these things, so it's immediately happening after all this has happened. He's, he's encountered Melchizedek and, and everything with that. After these things, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. Now, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an important rabbit trail here because I think there's some significance here for this idea of a vision. It's not speaking that God came to Abram in a dream, although he's done that and he continues to do that. That's not what took place here. And, and it's not that God showed up in person and he spoke to Abram like I'm speaking to you guys, although he's going to do that with Abram in a number of chapters. And, and he doesn't speak with a booming voice or, or write on a wall like he did with Nebuchadnezzar in this case here. Instead, the word vision is speaking to these perceived thoughts within Abram's mind. And I think that's the, the most consistent way in which God speaks to us is that these thoughts are kind of pushed into our mind, pushed into our consciousness that we're kind of aware of. And, and those who've been developing that relationship with God begin to recognize that's God speaking to them that he's encouraging them or he's leading them. They're, they're recognizing his voice as these impressions. They're perceiving it in him. And that's what's happened here with Abram is he's perceiving in his, in his mind with his vision of what God's saying to him. And he says, do not fear Abram. I, I love that part. Like the God of the universe speaks to Abram by name. I mean, think about it. We're, we're less than ants to God, or we ought to be at least, considering who he is and who we are. We're, we're little specks of dust. And yet, he knows your name. And he addresses you by name. And he speaks to you. And he encourages you. And he's right there with us. And so that's the kind of God that we have here. A God who, who knows your story. He knows your dreams. He knows your desires. He knows your disappointments, your struggles, your failures, your, your hopes, who's hurt you. He knows everything about you. And he loves you deeply to the point like, like Abram, he knows your name. And so he's speaking to Abram. He says, do not fear Abram. And then he, he gives him a promise, a promise that's really in two parts. The first one is I will be a shield to you. I will be the one to protect you. And two, your reward will be great. Now, some translations, notably the King James goes on. It says that I will be a shield to you and your great reward, meaning that the reward is God himself is what, what some tra and, and translators have interpreted this passage to be. Uh, and that's true. God is the great reward, as I hope to show you later on this morning. But, but I don't think that's really what, what God was saying to Abraham. I think he was referring to something else. So the translation of I am your shield comma, and your reward will be great is probably the better interpretation to all that. So Abram hears this, he senses this, he perceives this from God. And, and so you might think, well, what, what would be the appropriate response to this? That, that maybe, maybe he would be in awe of all this? Not at all. Instead, his response to this is big deal. What's the point? I mean, think about it. God says, you already have a great reward. He says, pointless. That's his response. Look what he says in verses two and three. Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. See, Abram is, is struggling. There's a lot of angst in his soul. And he's not hiding it from God, which is good. He's not pretending that everything's okay. And I think that's probably why God spoke to him first with, do not be afraid. So we might've interpreted that as being that Abram was afraid that these four Kings that he'd so soundly defeated, that maybe they had friends or brothers, or maybe they would make a comeback and they would try to exact some revenge on Abram. And so maybe he was afraid of his physical safety. And that's why God says, don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. But I think the angst and the, the, the distress in his soul is about what he just said about not having any children of his own, not having any heirs of his own. See, the, the name of Abram means great or high father, which is ironic when you don't have any kids. And so every time someone was calling his name, they're basically saying, hey, great father, great father, would you come over here? 
How are you doing today, great father? And every day, what's it a reminder of? I'm no great father because I'm no father. I have no kids. And so that's, that's what he's longing for. So he, he complains to God and he says, I, the heir of my household is this man named Eliezer of Damascus. The word there, heir, is actually literally steward. Meaning though, he's saying, God, the, the person who's going to be in charge of my household when I'm gone is Eliezer of Damascus. He's a servant born in my household. He's not mine for I have no heir. It's a different word this time. I have no descendants. I have no seed. I have no child. And I therefore have no heir. What's interesting about that word heir, the second time it's used, it, it literally translates to possessor. And it's often used to talking about possessing something that is not actually your own, right? So a thief or someone who is bullied, who is taken by force, that's that word for possessor. And I thought about that, what a great definition for heir. Think about it. You know, when my, when my parents pass and they, they leave me everything, I'm, I'm sorry, Mike and Paul, I don't know why they didn't include you guys, but, but they leave me everything. I am the heir of all that. But the reality is I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. I didn't do anything. I am possessing something that is not my own. And why I think that was such a great word, because I think about our, our salvation, right? The heir, the inheritance that we possess in Christ Jesus is not ours in that sense that we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it, but we possess it. We possess something that is not really from our own hands. And so Abram here, he's complaining that he's got no children. He's got no one to pass this on to. And that really is his greatest and one desire. You see, the reality is the moment, the moment he passes this on to the steward of his household, to Eliezer, his story ends. Everything that happens next isn't about Abram anymore. It's about this man named Eliezer of Damascus, born of some other father. And the story, the name of Abram would end with Eliezer. And that's why it was so important for, the, for men to have these heirs, to have these children, so that their name would continue into the next generation and the generation after that, hopefully, and the one after that, hopefully. And so for him, all of his life will end because he's got no heirs. He's got no children. And so he's upset about that. He's frustrated by that. And he's crying out to God over it. And so what does God say in verses four and five? Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. And if you're able to count them, he said to him, so shall your descendants be. In essence, God says, Eliezer is not my plan. He's not going to be your heir. He's not going to be the one to possess all that I've given to you. You're going to have your own child, your own seed, literally your own descendant. And he's going to be born of your own body. And in fact, you're going to have so many descendants that they're greater than the number of stars in the sky. You know, we live in a city area, most of us, and, and there's so much light pollution. It's really hard to, to fathom the significance of this statement. But when I, when I go visit my parents up North near, near Huntsville, there's, there's a, you're kind of far away and at least a little bit far away from the city that on a, on a clear night, you can actually see the Milky way. And, and you just sit back and you think you can't even, it's like a cloud of stars. There's so many of them. And you can only imagine what it was like for Abraham when there was no light pollution, right? There was no cities or, you know, maybe there's a fire in the distance, but that's about it. And so for him to look up in the night sky to see all the stars, God says, okay, start counting. Because even if you could, it wouldn't match the number of descendants you're going to have. And so there's this great promise for Abraham that, that basically God is saying to him, your heart's desire is going to be fulfilled. Your name will be great as I promised. It will go on and on and on and on as I promised. And, and what might you expect Abraham's or response to be to this? Maybe, maybe at this point he, he fell onto his knees and he worshiped God. 
or with, with gratitude, he praised God and he wrote a song. Or, or maybe he decided to build an altar and he, he called the place. Many kids are coming. God send help. Right? Maybe that's what he would call. You would expect maybe some of that kind of answers. But that's not what he does. Verse 6 tells us. It says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham believed. That's it. Just a simple response. And yet it is one of the most profound and the greatest things in all of humanity and all of history. So let's, let's start with this word believe. Many of you actually know the Hebrew word for believe. I didn't, you probably didn't know this, but you actually know the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is, is amen. You see, what we've done is, is we've transliterated, we've taken the Hebrew word amen, and we've, it's just been converted into Greek and into English. And, and it means the same thing. The word literally means truth. That's what it's saying. And so when you're saying amen to something, you're saying that's truth. That's reality. Kids today would say facts. That's for Zoe, right? But it's more than just a mental assent to truth. It's more than just a, oh yeah, check. I recognize that as truth. It's, it means essentially that, that this truth, this amen is something that I'm going to orient my life around now. I'm going to plan around. For example, if, um, if Joy and I were kind of planning and, and things are happening and, and our kids are away and, and so we make a plan that Joy is going to go pick up the kids, that's the plan and we orient our life around it. Meaning she goes to get them, not me. It'd be foolish of me to go when she's already doing it. So when we're saying that's the plan, we plan around it. We work around it. That's what Abram's doing at this point. When he's saying, this is the truth, amen. And he begins to orient his life around all that. Now, for some, they've made it about the size of your belief. And that you, do you, do you, are you seeing the things you want to see happen? If you're not, well, maybe you need more faith. You need more belief. And, and so we've, we kind of make it about the, the size of your belief. And, but that's not really the case. So let me illustrate it to you this way. Imagine there are two people on an airplane. And, and one person is just, you know, chilling out. They got their eye mask on. They got their, their earbuds in and they're just sleeping while flying on the plane. But the other person is a little bit more anxious, shall we say, right? They're twitching. They're like, they're kind of like not really sitting on their seat, kind of lifting up because they're just worried about the extra weight it might be, right? So they're, they're helping the pilots, essentially. They're, they're helping the plane, and they're holding their breath and they're just, they're just sweating buckets, right? Because they're, what are they worried about? That the plan's going to go down. Whereas the guy asleep, not worried at all. He's happily on his way. But here's what's interesting. Both of them arrive at the same destination at the same time safely. You see, it wasn't about the size of their faith that they had. See, they had, both of them had just enough faith to get on the plane. Anything beyond that just determined what kind of experience they had on the flight, but they still got there. And that's the thing with faith. It's not that you need some enormous, um, big faith to qualify. It's just a matter of how much you're going to enjoy the ride. And so maybe you're sweating buckets and you're trying to help Jesus, you know, not quite by sitting in your seat or, or sweating and anxious over things, but you're not helping him in any way when he's saying, trust me, relax, I've got it. And so that's what essentially happened with, with Abraham in verse six is he had enough faith to get on the plane. He had enough faith to say amen to it. The question is, what did he say amen to? What did he believe? And, and thankfully the, the answer is given to us in scripture. Now in verses four and five, it gives us a brief summary of that. But fortunately, later on in scripture, we have a larger view of that. So if you want, turn with me to Galatians chapter three, because Paul's going to give us an extended commentary of what, what was going on in Abram's life. 
So in Galatians chapter three, Paul's writing to these, this church and he's speaking to them about Abram's covenants. And in Galatians three, beginning in verse, verse six, it says, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? That's the verse we, we just read in, in Genesis 15, verse six, verse seven. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That was Genesis 12 verse three. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. See, in essence, what we see is that, that God was presenting the gospel to Abraham. Even back then in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and, and to some degree, he understood it. How much? I don't know. But he had enough faith in the gospel. That's what he was saying amen to. He was saying yes to the gospel. And because he believed, it's reckoned to him unto righteousness. Now, what's interesting is, is Paul continues on this. And he, and he speaks in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Now he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds. See, that part comes out, doesn't come out very clear in our English translations because it's translated descendants in our English translation in, uh, in Genesis 15. But it's actually seed and it's singular. That's how it should have been translated. And, and Paul's making the point, it wasn't the promise given to for everyone. It was to one person in particular. Who's that one person? It was Jesus. Again, that promise of Jesus coming as a descendant of a, of a person was promised in Genesis 15. That's what we're going to be celebrating tomorrow. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He does not say, returning back to Galatians 3.16, he does not say and to seeds referring to many, but rather to the one and to your seed that is Christ. So the promise of Jesus was shared with Abram and he believed it. He embraced it. He began to orient his life around this truth. And then the question is, well, who are these descendants and who are these sons of Abraham today? And the answer is, it's you and I. It's not physical Israel, Paul says in Romans, but rather those who are by spiritual birth, those who've entered in by faith. You see the same way that Abram entered into the promise he believed, he said, amen, and oriented his life around it. That's salvation for you and I, that we believe, we say, amen, and we orient our truth around the fact that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, that he's the one that's gonna rescue us from our sins. He's the one that rescues us from, our, from death. He's the one that offers us life and peace and power and grace. That's how we orient our life around now. And what's beautiful is the same result that happened to Abram happens to us. That belief results in what? In righteousness. Let's, uh, let's consider this term, righteousness. It's a, it's a biblical term that, that I think has sort of fallen out of favor in the sense that it's not used very often. When I was growing up, the, the most often time I heard righteousness was watching a movie with two characters named Bill and Ted. They had an excellent adventure. And, and that's how I don't righteous dude, right? That, that's how I, that's, that's pretty much the only time I ever heard it. And, and so what ends up happening is, is it just becomes a bit of a, another word, just a common word. And it kind of loses its significance and its power. And, and it just doesn't really mean anything. It's just sort of a slang term for something that's good, but without its context, it, it, it wasn't leading me to Jesus. Now, the, the Hebrew word is a zadaka. Go ahead and say that, zadaka. I love, those are fun words to say, right? Zadaka. And, and it means to be in right standing with God. It means to be, to be approved. It means to be accepted. I love this definition of it, is, is it was often a term that was used describing something that is in its right order. Any control freaks out there? Right. You know, when, when things start to go well, right. And, and everything just check, check, check. And like, wow, it worked. Does that feel good? That's what this word Zadaka is referring to, right? It's, it's orderly. It's 
proper. It's in its right form and function. And that's what this word righteousness is meaning. The Greek word is diakasune, and, and it's the same word that's used as justify. And I, I make that point so that every time you see the word justify or justified or, or justification, is speaking about righteousness. It's the same term in the Greek. It's the same idea. So to justify something is to make righteous. It's identical. And I say that because I've heard some people say, well, he justifies, but we're not righteous. It doesn't work that way, right? It's one in the same. It's together, right? So what's interesting then about, uh, sorry, Genesis 15 verse six, is it's the first time that faith and righteousness are used together. See, faith has already been used, right? It's, it's shown up and, and we, we read about that in Hebrews 11 about how by faith men like Enoch and uh, people like uh, Abel and people like Noah and so forth, how they lived and operated by faith. So the word faith is in operation and the word righteousness has been used. It was used speaking specifically of Noah. But in Genesis 15, it's the first time faith and righteousness are used together. And that is profound for you and I today. Absolutely profound. Martin Luther and the other reformers, they recognize how the whole gospel rests on this connection. Listen to what he, he wrote in, um, in one commentary. Martin Luther says this, when the article of justification has fallen, Right, So this, this truth, this pillar of righteousness, of justification has fallen. Everything else has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have, flown, have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all other kinds of doctrines. You see how big and important this verse is? This little simple verse. And Abram believed and it was reckoned or credited unto him righteousness. So let's, let's understand the significance of this verse by kind of asking it questions. Questions that, are, that many people have asked around this, this doctrine here. Number one is, um, does, does our faith really matter or is it simply the result of predestination? This is the, this is the main theology of, of the reformed or Calvinist uh, denomination where, where everything is predestined. And they would, they would argue that, that God causes someone to be born again before they're saved. That they're, they're born again at God's choosing by God's power. He, he redeems them. He crucifies them, buries them, makes them new creations, makes them righteous, and then gives them the freedom to choose to do what he's already done. So basically they say righteousness leads to belief is the argument. What's interesting, that's not what the verse says. Order matters here, right? It says that Abram believed and therefore, as a result, God reckoned him unto righteousness. It's believe and then made righteous. That's supported by the order of it, but it's also even supported by the grammar of it. The grammar here is that Abram believed. That was a, it was an active verb. It was something he did. He chose to believe. And the result was made righteous, meaning that was passive. He didn't do that. God did that in response to the belief. And so our belief does matter. Otherwise, all of this is a joke. It's pointless. It really is pointless. If, if, it, if it doesn't need your belief, you and I have no part to play in all this, and there's no reason for us to be here anymore. But your belief matters, your choices matter, because love demands that we have a choice. And so God's given that choice to us. Does that make sense? So you and I, we're not predestined to salvation or hell. We choose salvation or by default, we choose hell. That's why no one can be without excuse. It's our choice, not his. Because God longs for how many to be saved? The whole world. Amen. See what I did there? Facts. Yeah. Oh dear. Let's not start that. All right. Well, here's another popular one then. Well, 
are we justified by faith alone or are our works what justify us? James chapter two would seem to imply that it's our works that justify us. Uh, let's, let's turn to it. You don't have to turn to it. I'm, I'm just going to read it quickly for short on time. But in James chapter two, verses 18 to 26, he writes this, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, that would seem to imply that it is about your works. And therefore you got to get going. You got to make sure you're doing enough stuff in order to qualify and earn your salvation. Is that really what James is saying? Well, we know he's not saying that. And here's a few reasons One reasons why. Number one, all scripture has to agree with itself, which means that one part, one letter, one author has to agree with another. James can't be saying one thing and Paul saying something else. They have to fit. They have to fit together. And we have other passages that are very simple that make it clear to us that that's not what he's saying, such as Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace, you've been saved apart from works. By grace, through faith apart from works so that none may boast. You see, if it's about our works, then we've done it. We make ourselves righteous and it would be Abram believed and Abram made himself righteous, but that's not the case. The righteousness was bestowed upon him by God. He didn't do it. So we know that's not what James is saying. As one pastor famously notes, your theology of salvation must include the thief on the cross. Think about that thief on the cross, right? The one who, who said, you know, to the other thief, Hey, lay off. This guy's actually innocent. What did Jesus say to that thief? You will be with me in paradise today with my father. Now think about it. This thief on the cross, how many, how many missions organizations did he start? How much evangelism did he do? How many, how much did he give? How much did he serve and volunteer? How many, how much time did he put in with the kids nursery? Like what was he doing to qualify for his salvation? Nothing. He believed. He said, amen. Right. That was it. That's all. That's all it took. So what is James speaking about then? Well, really quickly, he's referring to a time when Abram's faith was going to be tested. You see, when he's talking about Isaac, we're going to get to there. Yeah, that's in chapter 22. But in 15 is when God declared or God credited him righteousness. So what, what's happening in 22 is what he's speaking to of, of a testing or a trial. Right over Hebrews in Hebrews 11 verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. You see, it was, a, it was an opportunity for that faith to be expressed and shown through works, to be tested, to be proven. That's what 22 was all about. Remember our illustration about the plane? Well, at some point, both of those passengers had to get onto the plane. It wasn't enough to say, oh, I know the plane's safe. I know it's great. I know it's going to get us there safe and sound, but then take a bus. You don't really believe in the plane then. Because if you really believe in the plane, you'll get on the plane. Because it's more than just a mental ascent. So when I hear people talking about, well, I know God loves me, and yet I'm chasing love over here. Well, I know God will provide, and yet I got to manipulate and make things over here happen. I know God will protect me, but I got to control everything around me. Well, you know about it, but you don't believe it. Because you're not living it out by faith. You're not getting on the plane, so to speak. 
And so that's really what, what James is getting at here is that the true faith will show itself. Whether you're gripping the seat or whether you're asleep in the, in the chair, it's still faith because you got on the plane. Does that make sense? All right, another common misconception about this term called righteousness is they say, well, it's a positional righteousness, uh, but not a true righteousness. And, and so what basically they're, they're keying on this word reckon, right? Where God reckoned or credited it to Abraham, this righteousness. This word reckon is sort of like an accounting term where you're reconciling the books. That's where it's really coming from, where you're, you're sort of having a forensic or a legal uh, value attached to it. And so the thinking here is it's sort of like heavenly bookkeeping that God has written into your accounts, uh, account. He's given you righteousness and it's sitting in an account waiting for you in heaven, sort of like a trust, right? Someone, someone puts money in a trust that money is yours. It belongs to you. You just don't possess it. You don't touch it. And that's how a lot of people have seen or understood this term called righteousness, that it's a positional truth, that it's up in heaven. It's in your books. It's held in trust. And when you get to heaven, Michael, it's going to be beautiful. You'll finally get to have it. But right now you don't actually possess it. So it's true for you, just not true of you today. Because after all, they argue, you're still a sinner, aren't you not? So you're righteous positionally, righteous in heaven, but in actuality, you're still a sinner. The problem with that thinking is that it completely ignores the cross. It denies what God did and accomplished on the cross. You see in Romans 5, 19, Paul tells us that the way you and I were made sinners by one man's transgression. Who is the one man? Adam, Right? Through one man's transgression, Adam in the garden, it says, everyone, all of humanity who was in Adam at the time was made sinners. Word made is to be constituted. You were, you were constructed. Every ounce, every ounce of your being was a sinner because of that one transgression. Meaning how many sins did you have to personally commit to become a sinner? None. But that's not where the verse ends. Verse goes on in the same way through one man's obedience. Who's the one man? Not you, not me, Jesus. Through Jesus's obedience, it says, the many will be made righteous. Same word made, constituted. Now the will be part isn't in the future. It's a conditional statement. If this is true, then this is true. And the moment you and I placed our faith in Christ, the moment we said, amen to salvation, something dramatic takes place more than just being forgiven. You, your spirit is taken out of this Adam character and you are, you are spiritually placed into Jesus Christ on that cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, you spiritually died with Jesus. That's just facts. That was your moment, right? Facts, right? Truth. Amen. That's the reality of it. No, well, I don't feel dead. Doesn't matter. Still true. I, I, I can't point to things. I don't, I don't, don't, don't remember that happening. It's still true because God said it's true. And so you were crucified and you were buried. The sinner was crucified and buried. And God said, so long, farewell. It's gone. And you were born again as a new creation born again with a new spirit made in the likeness of God in holiness and righteousness. And that's truth. Ephesians 4, 24. That's who you are today. And so when we say it's just a positional, but not true of me, we're denying what God accomplished on the cross, which is the crucifixion of the sinner. He got rid of him. And you and I were born again as saints, as new creations, new people. That's who we are, which is why we're righteous today as he is righteous today. Again, I'm an heir of this. I possess it, but I didn't, I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. It's not really mine, but it's been given to me. Isn't that a good word? Facts. Well, here's the most important question I think, and hopefully we can answer is, why does any of this matter today? 
and you know, selfishly, it means that we get to avoid hell. And, uh, and we also get to avoid being connected to team Satan, who's going to lose. So who wants to be on a losing team? So that's, that's a win, right? But <laughs> well, I'll let that pass. So, but here's the thing, simply not going to hell is not enough. It's kind of like, like being thirsty, but I didn't drink the poison. Good. I mean, that's, that's a win. I'll take it. But you're still what? You're still thirsty. And I need something more than just to not go to hell. I need life. Enter Jesus, the living water, life himself. Because see, ultimately, he is offering to you and I everything we long for. Everything that you truly want is going to be found in Jesus. It's not going to be found in a spouse. It's not going to be found in a child or in, in a friend or in a job, a ministry, in money, in fame, in fortune, in an adventure, in a, in, a, in, a, in a purpose even. You're not going to find what you're longing for there. Those are all supposed to be the outflow of what satisfies us. See, the, the purpose, the calling, the job, the, the friendships you have are the result of what God's already given to you and done in you. We get it the other way around. We're thinking if I get enough friends, maybe if I marry someone, have kids, get a good job, you know, our, our financial secure, then I'll find that peace that I'm longing for. But it's an elusive peace. It's an elusive hope. It's always just around the corner because it'll never actually come. Let me read to you in Psalm 73. I fell in love with this psalm this week. It's, um, it's written by a man named Asaph. And he says, surely in verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Can anyone relate? All right, we'll do a testimony time. Come on up here. I'm kidding. I came close to stumbling. My, ste my steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Look around the world. You think, God, they don't love you. They're not trusting you. They're completely doing the opposite. And yet it seems to be working for them. They spit on your name and they're getting away with it. God. Verse four, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They're not struggling for food. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riots. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue and parades through the earth. In essence, he's saying it's not fair. I'm, I'm following you. I've said, amen. I'm trusting you. And, and they haven't, but they've got it. And I don't, it's not fair. We'll skip down now to verse 25. And I think we discover what Asaf discovers. He says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven, but you. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. He began to realize that everything he was chasing and everything he was jealous of in this world, be it relationships or money or fame or fortune or success, he says, I really actually don't want that. I want you. Because quite frankly, when I get to heaven, all I'm going to have is you. That's it. That's all. Everything else is just going to disappear. For be, um, uh, verse 20, uh, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. How near are you to God? He who has joined himself with God is now one spirit. Near, near, I cannot be, for in my spirit, in my, my savior, 
I shall always be. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, for me, I, I get distracted from that. I get my eyes on this world and what's happening in this world. What's happening in the, the larger world, uh, worldwide, what's happening in our country, what's happening to my friends and my neighbors and, and the struggles are going through and then the, my own struggles. How am I going to pay the bills? How are we going to do this? And then the frustrations of plans and they don't happen. And then maybe this happens and, and, and then and I just get distracted and my eyes are all on this. Kind of like Peter when he stepped out of the boat and got his eyes on the water and I begin to sink. I begin to feel that distress and that, that sorrow and that frustration. And I start thinking too much about who I am now. I take myself too seriously. I don't get to laugh at jokes or laugh at myself at times when I make foolish mistakes. I obsess over things that quite frankly will not exist a hundred years from now. Maybe even 50 years or 10 years. I get so fixated on these, these minute temporary things. And really it's just distracting me from what my heart truly desires. I love how David put it in Psalm 27, four. He says, one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That's my desire. It's the only desire that will satisfy. Guys, I, if I could shake you to get you to see this, I would. It's, it's so important to see that, that this world, it won't satisfy. It doesn't mean we ignore it. it doesn't, I'm not saying we need to be hermits and just you know, silo ourselves off from it. No, you're still in this world and we, we have a mission and a calling in this world, but this world is not my life. It doesn't supply what I'm looking for. So things will come and go, but Jesus does not. Jesus has come to stay. And I just want to behold him and his beauty. I want to make that my obsession. I think that's what Paul was getting at when his letter to the Philippians. So Philippians three, verses seven to 11, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. Everything I'd earned, everything I built, rubbish gone for the sake of knowing him. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, right? He, he lost everything. The moment he said, amen to Jesus, but he says, it's worth it. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all, but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness, not having a, a orderly perfection or a rightness of myself um, derived from the law, but that which comes through faith, through amen in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's our goal. Jesus described eternal life. You know, we think eternal life is just being able to live forever and I can have all the adventures I want. John 17, three says eternal life is knowing God. Intimately face-to-face, -face, up close, knowing him. That's this gift. See, righteousness is the means to make all that possible. So when God says, you're Zadaka, you've been made orderly, you've made right, and you're perfect, and you're good, so that we can fit together now. And you and I can be one, and we can do life together. Will you trust me? Will you go with me? And I think the only answer is to say amen, to believe it, to order our life around it, to express that through gratitude that he cares about me, that he knows my name like he knew, knew Abram's name, that he gets to talk to me the same way he talked to Abram, and that he actually enjoys my company enough. And this blows my mind. 
because I don't even enjoy my company sometimes, but he enjoys my company enough that he says, I will make it my permanent abode. You're my mailing address. That's where I want to be. And again, this, this relationship, this intimacy doesn't lead to isolation and solitude because that love is so impactful that it spills out to everyone else. I mean, think about it. You find a great restaurant or a great life hack or, or you discover that, you know, Coke, how much better it is than Pepsi. You want to tell the world, right? Well, that's essentially what's happening here is that, that you get so impacted by the love of God and you see him and you want the world to see him. You want the world to know him. And how will they know him? Jesus says, by my love, by how you love them. And so that's what we get to do. We ought to be the most loving, non-condemning, non-judgmental, gracious people out there. Please understand that doesn't mean we tolerate sin. No, because, because love will call sin out. But I don't need the person to fix their sin problem before I love them. I don't need them to get their life orderly before I love them. I love them in the midst of their sin. Not condemning, not beating them up, not tearing them down because they don't think like me, look like me or act like me. I love them because God loves them and he's loved me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we celebrate who you are and what you've done. What an incredible life you've given to us. What an incredible gift. And tomorrow, many of us will be opening up gifts as an interesting way to kind of celebrate your life. We give gifts to one another, but you've ultimately given us the greatest gift, which is your, yourself. So thank you, Jesus, for choosing to come to this earth and be born as a little helpless baby, spending your first night in a dish, in a manger, a feed trough for animals. Growing up, struggling through this world, facing the taunts and the, and the bullying that you would have inevitably experienced for being different. Experiencing rejection and heartbreak, betrayal, abandonment, ultimately leading you to a death on a cross that you did not deserve, but you willingly chose for the joy set before us, before you, which is us. So we accept this gift of your life. And we say, Amen. You have been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.